with you guys this morning. Um, Susan is one of my dear friends. We pray for each other's children because we both have, I have teenagers and she, her kids are one step ahead of mine. Um, so it's been fun to have a prayer partner and someone who has a mama's heart that loves my kids and prays for them. And um, in the mix of all that, I've been, I've prayed for you because we both love our people. So it's fun to get to share in her life and um, to get to meet all of you. But we are talking about um, the concept of hope, which I was just speaking to my table earlier. I wrote these talks like 12 years ago, um, but they have morphed and changed a lot over the last 12 years, and especially in the last two, <laughs> because I used to spend the entire intro talking to people and saying like, you know that really sad, aching feeling inside of you? That's hopelessness. And in the last two years, everybody's like, I know what that is. <laughs> you don't have to tell me what that is. I now know. And so in many ways, I feel like COVID has done us a great service. It has been a great revealer in a lot of our hearts and lives. We've seen all the places where we have put our hopes that were insufficient. And so in many ways, God has used the last two years to clear the ground. And when God clears ground, we often feel barren. <laughs> And we don't like feeling that way. That's uncomfortable for us. But I want to remind you that barren ground is where God does his best work. And so if you are coming today and you are feeling like God has taken a lot of things away from you in the last two years, and you are struggling to fix your eyes on something better, I want you to know that that is actually a really wonderful place to be. I feel more afraid for people who walk in feeling full and satisfied in all that they have in life because those are the hearts that are not asking the right questions because they don't feel that gnawing sense of there has to be more for me than this. And so if you have those kinds of questions, you're in the right place. And we are actually going to start with Psalm 42 and 43, um, which at, at one point, probably one Psalm. Um, so we're going to start there. So if you want to go ahead and be turning there, I want to actually talk to you for just a moment about the connection between lament and hope. Um, so lament is also something that I think probably before two years ago, we didn't do a lot of as American Western Christ, uh, Christians. I think lament is one of those things that we recognize is necessary, but we are all a little allergic to. None of us really wants to sorrow before God. And yet... The interesting thing that we will find as we look through this psalm this morning and then as we look at two other psalms for the rest of the day, one of the things we're going to find is that lament and hope hold hands together. You cannot have hope without lament. On this side of eternity, we have to have hope and lament exist together. And so we are going to first talk through the importance of lament. You and I have to be people who bring our honest selves our raw selves to a very real God and sorrow before him because lament clears the path forward to hope. And so those two things go hand in hand. And uh, my, I have an assistant who helps me and she was talking to me one time about this set of talks and she was like, I kind of feel like it's misleading that you call this like the whole series is hope because really you do start out really sad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but you can't call a re women's retreat like, the path through sorrow to hope <laughs> because no one would show up <laughs> none of us want to walk a path of sorrow in order to get to hope that's the reality of our hearts and yet all throughout the psalms embedded in the psalms are these beautiful prayers of the saints of god who have gone before us that bring 
their real raw selves to God and say, this hurts, this hurts, and I need to know who you are in this. And that as they process their sorrow before God, a path of hope opens up to them. And so the reality of lament and hope holding hands on this side of eternity is one that we have to recognize and one that we have to wrestle with in our own hearts and be willing to lament before God. And if that feels hard, I want you to know that's okay because our culture is not set up to lament well. We have a culture that distracts us at every turn. I have a 17-year-old and a 16-year-old, and I am shocked at the things that distract them. The reels that they go through on Instagram and TikTok, I'm like, this is the stupidest stuff I've ever seen. (laughs) And yet we spend hours watching it because we're a distractible people. We enjoy being distracted. We don't want to have to stop and think about what's actually going on inside of our hearts. And yet the Psalms of Lament lead a way for us. They lay out a path for us to say, bring those things to God. Bring those things to him. Lament before him. Our culture is one that enjoys distracting us, but our culture also has something else that's hard, that is a barrier to lament. We are a culture that enjoys fixing and doing. And lament requires that we sit and we wait. And we don't like that. As Westerners, we like to have a list of to-dos and we like to find a problem and fix a problem within the same day. And yet the reality of the life that's laid out for us in the Psalms through these Psalms of Lament is that what God often wants us to do is to bring our troubles and our sorrows and our hurting hearts to him and be willing to sit with him and hold hands with him there for a season. And we don't like that. And yet these Psalms of Lament show us that if we don't choose to do that, the pathway of hope is blocked to us. We are people who want hope, but we don't want to sit in sorrow. But those things go hand in hand in scripture. Can you see why we couldn't, I couldn't have told you that this is what we were going to talk about first thing. Or y'all would be like, I think I'll show up at 11. (laughs) I don't want to talk about that. (laughs) And so we are a culture that likes to be distracted. We are a culture that likes to do and not sit. And we are also a culture that I think is afraid of tears because the reality, at least this is true of my own heart. I'm afraid that if I start crying, I'll never stop because there's just so many things to be sad about. So many things in our own stories, in our own lives, in our families, in our friends' lives, in our churches, in our culture, in our world. There's just so much to be sad about. And I think as limited, finite people, we struggle to start to cry because we think if I start crying, it's going to open up the floodgates and I'll never stop. But the other reality of the Psalms of Lament is that God looks at you and says, that's okay. That's okay. Because I'm not throwing you into a sea of sorrow and leaving you there. I'm holding hands with you here. I'm guiding you through lament, which is why he gives us so many psalms of lament. If you're not sure where to start, all you have to do is pray his own words back to him. Say his own words back to him. And one of the things that I think you'll find, um, at least this is what I have found, um, is that when you choose to bring your laments to God, a portal opens up between your heart and his. I spent um, the summer of 2020... I, I donned it the, um, the summer of lament. And the reason I did that is because as a white girl who grew up in Mississippi, I knew I needed to grieve 
the racial injustices that I had been a part of, but I didn't know how to start. And so I took that summer to just pray through the Psalter and I asked God, would you teach me to grieve this and to own what I need to own and to, to sorrow before you and teach me to be sad because I need your help. And so it was one of the things that I found as I practiced that summer, just lamenting before God and praying through every single Psalm. It was beautiful. I felt more grief than I've ever felt before. It was as if God opened up this portal between my heart and his, and I felt the things that he felt sad about. And it was this deep connection between us, more grief than I've ever felt, but a deep joy and love and hope that I've, that I've ever experienced before. Both of those go hand in hand because the truth is our God's heart is full of sorrow. He grieves what the children of men do to one another. He grieves it deeply but he also knows the end. And so he has great hope and great love and great restoration and plan for us. But if we choose not to lament, we actually close the door to hope and we close the door to the things that he wants to do in and through us. And so his invitation is to come into his heart, grieve with him, lament with him and hope with him too. And so my prayer for you this weekend, except it's just today, (laughs) is that over the course of today, that you will bring your real self to a very real God, that you will not try to tie a nice little bow around your feelings. Because as we read Psalm 42 and 43, that is not what the psalmist does. He brings his real disappointment to God. And he says, even you did this to me. You can bring your real self to, your, to a real God and sit with him in your pain and wait for that pathway of hope to open up and then rejoice as he walks with you through this. And so we are going to talk first about lament, um, but we are going to unpack what that shows us about hope. And in the next two sessions, we're going to look at where do we get the power to hope like this in a hopeless world? Where do we get the power to be hopeful people? And our last session, we're going to talk about what does a life lived like this actually look like? Because I enjoy practical takeaways because I am a doer. (laughs) I enjoy being able to say, okay, how do we make this? How do we weave this into our everyday lives? And so we'll end with a psalm that shows us patterns for us how to do this in our everyday lives. Um, But before we get started, I actually want us, I'm going to do this throughout our talks today. I want us to define our terms because our English word hope and the Hebrew word hope are two very different things. So when you and I talk about hope, we often think of it as wishful thinking, like I hope I get a pony for my birthday, or I hope I get to go to Hawaii, which is what Susan was praying for me, and I did not get to go. I have disappointed hopes. (laughs) I don't get to go to Hawaii this summer like I wanted to. But we have this idea of hope as like, I'm not sure this thing is gonna happen, but I really, really want it to, and so I hope it will happen. And that's how we use the word hope. But that is not the use of the word hope in scripture. And so the use of the word here in the Old Testament, and I'm not a Hebrew speaker, there's too much like (sighs) happening in the Hebrew language. So I don't know how you say this word, um, but the word that we're going to be talking about over and over again in these Psalms is the Hebrew word yachal, Y-A-C-H-A-L, yachal. And it doesn't mean wishful thinking. It means long, patient waiting. It is expectant. It is the heart that knows the promises of God and believes them to be true, but a heart that doesn't know when those promises are actually going to come to fruition. 
And so it's a heart that has set itself on the promises of God and has settled itself in the nature of our God who keeps his promises to us, but sits in waiting for those promises to come true. And so when we talk about hope, we are going to be people who say we are not wondering if God's going to keep his promises to us. We know he will. But what do we do with our hearts while we wait for those promises to come true in our lives? And so this under, Hebrew understanding of the word hope, I think is really helpful to us to know that we are expectant. We are living expectant lives before the Father. But we are learning to wait for a long time and to wait patiently for a God we know will show up. We just don't know when he's coming. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk through this concept of hope. And I think that actually shows us why grief is a part of that. Because there are many times in our lives where we long for God to show up, for God to keep his promises to us. And it doesn't happen in the timing in which that we think it should or that we wish it would. And so we're going to talk about that first through Psalm 42 and 43. Then we're going to look at the other Psalms um, later on today. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 42 and 43. And then we'll talk through them. So I'm going to start in verse 1 and I'm going to end at the end of 43. So 42 verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, we stand on the edge of a psalm that asks us to look at really hard things. And so I just pray for your grace right now. I pray for your tender hand of mercy. I pray that we would feel you supporting us as we look at this psalm. And Lord, would you help us be honest with our souls? I pray that we would also be able to voice the things that the psalmist voices here and ask our souls good questions like, why are you cast down? Why have you lost hope? 
And I pray that we would feel the presence of your spirit as we process through these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so again, we chose a, I chose a psalm of lament to start. And I had many psalms to choose from, but I like this one um, because it is a psalm about spiritual depression. And it shows us a lot of things. And all depression has a spiritual aspect as well as a physical and an emotional aspect. But we're going to look at the spiritual aspect of depression this morning. Yes, it's not a very hopeful talk. (laughs) It's not happy. (laughs) So we're going to talk about spiritual depression uh, from looking at this song. And the reason that I chose this one, because there's also lots of psalms of lament that talk about this feeling of depression, this feeling of being cast off by God and feeling alone and sorrowful. But I chose this one because of what it lacks. This psalm lacks a prayer of confession. The psalmist recognizes that he is not in this situation because he has sinned. And I think that's helpful to our hearts because so many times when we're in a a hard place, we immediately say, what did I do to get myself here? Why am I here? And I want us to recognize that that is is a good question to ask. We should always be asking God to search me and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. Show me the hurtful ways that are in me so that you can lead me in a path that's everlasting. But sometimes we're in a place just because of our situation. We're in a sorrowful place because of what others have done to us, because of the situations that we're in. In fact, the psalmist has lived such a life that in Psalm 43, he can say things like, vindicate me, defend my cause. I've lived a life before you that is one that can be vindicated, is one that can be defended. And so the psalmist recognizes that he's not struggling because of his sin. He's struggling because of the situation that he's in. And I think that's just helpful for us to tease out because we often want to look at our lives and say, how can I fix this? How can I just repent and say, I'm sorry, so you can take this away. But the reality of life where we are always needing to repent because we're always going to be sinning. Sometimes we will repent, but our situation won't change. So what do we do when we're stuck in a situation that's hurtful and hard? How do we process that before the Lord? How do we speak honestly to him about our own hearts um, and learn his heart in those places too? So 42 and 43, the psalmist is struggling to find hope because of his situation, not because of his sinfulness. And so we're going to look at this in three parts. We're first going to look at his situation and see what are the triggers? What is making his heart say, why are you downcast? Why are you unsettled within me? What are the triggers to that? Because the triggers for his heart will be the triggers for ours. So we're going to let him teach us about that. And then we're going to look at his experience. What does it feel like for him? He's going to give us some really beautiful pictures and words that help us understand and process our own feelings when we feel this deep disappointment with God. And then we're going to look at how does he comfort his own heart within this place? Because we want to be people who bring truth to struggle, who speak to our hearts in a life-giving way. So we're going to look at it in those three parts. So let's first look at the situation. So in chapter 42, we see that the psalmist is struggling with two different things. He has kind of a two-pronged struggle going on. The first one in verse 4, we see that he's lonely. He's cut off. He's been isolated. So he used to lead God's people in procession in worship at the temple. But now he's probably one of the exiles. We don't exactly know who wrote this psalm. Um, it could have been David. It's, it's not 
um, ascribed to him, but it could have been David when he was cut off from Jerusalem at one of the many points in his life that he was running in a nomad in the desert. Or it could have been um, one of the one of the worship leaders who led worship in the temple and it was exiled. And so he's physically cut off from the temple. But either way, the psalmist is struggling with a sense of deep loneliness. He's been cut off from the people that he knew, the life that he knew. Um, and he is cut off from the temple. And I think for, for New Testament believers, that's sometimes hard for us to understand. The old, our Old Testament believers, the ones who have gone before us, their attachment to the temple. But if you remember throughout um, the historical books of the Old Testament that God's people had always longed for a place and God gave them a place. And eventually he gave them a temple. Solomon built this beautiful temple where they could come, all of them could come and interact with the living God. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, a, a cloud of smoke filled the place. It reminded them of, of the pillar of smoke that led them back in the desert for those 40 years. The visible presence of God fills the temple. And that's a sign to God's people. This is the place where you can come and you can be with me where you know you are not alone in this world. I am present with you. I'm here with you. And so they had an attachment to the temple that you and I don't have because we're New Testament believers. And on Pentecost, flames that also reminded us of the fiery pillar that God led his people through the desert with, flames landed on us, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we are never cut off from his presence. But they didn't have that. And so the psalmist is longing not just for his people and his place, but he's longing for the presence of God. And he feels cut off and alone. And that's bad enough. But we also see in Psalm 42 that there's this other thing happening too. The people that he's with, this hostile environment, they are voicing the fears of his heart. They're saying, your God has left you. He's abandoned you. He's cut you off. And those daggers hurt because his own heart is wondering the same thing. Did you hear in chapter 43 where he says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? Why have you forgotten me? He's afraid that God has somehow forgotten his little life and he wonders what's going to become of him and so I'm sure that his enemies were taunting him in lots of ways but the ones that stick are the arrows that he's been struggling with with his own heart they are voicing the fears of his heart and I know that you know what that feels like we can have all kinds of insecurities, but when someone voices them back to us, we're like, oh no, that must be true because someone else confirmed it. And so we hate to hear someone else voice the insecurities of our souls. And that's what's happening to the psalmist here. He's cut off, he's isolated, but he's also being attacked and they're hitting him in the places where he feels the weakest. And so that is, those are the triggers of his heart. Those are the things, his isolation, his loneliness, the enemies attacking him with the words that he's afraid are true. And so those are the triggers of his depression. So now let's look at his experience. How does that feel to him? Well, he gives us in Psalm 42, these two very vivid pictures of how he feels, what his soul feels like before God. He, the first one he gives us in, is in verse one and two, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in the church, so one of the songs we used to sing was that, as the deer panted for the water, so my... You know, it's like always a little bit like... Um, but it's a funny picture because it's actually a deer dying of thirst. <laughs> so it's not a sing-songy kind of image here. <laughs> and so if you like that song, that's okay. But... <laughs> 
But it's just, it's one of these things. It's like an image that we grew up singing about, but it's actually a really terrifying one because deer are creatures of habit. I got several deer hunters in my family. And the reason those precious babies are so easy to kill is because they go the same path for generations. And so you set up your little, uh, I don't even know what those are called, but thank you. You're blind where you know they're going to be passing. They pass along information from generation to generation. This is where you find the water. This is where you go. And so they, they take these paths that they've taken all their lives. And this is a deer who has taken a path in which he's always found water, but he gets there and the water's not there. And now he's starting to pant and he's dying of thirst. And so the psalmist says, I'm like this deer. I'm going to all the places I used to find you, God. I showed up, but you didn't. Where are you? And so it's this deer who is searching for water. The psalmist is searching for the living God. Now, it's not as if the psalmist somehow believes that God is no longer omnipresent. He knows that God is here. But what he's searching for is the experience of God, the living God, the God from Psalm 18, where David cries out and God straps on his armor and splits the heavens and comes down to rescue David because he loves him. That's what the psalmist is looking for. He's saying, I'm looking for the living God to interact with me. But when I pray, I hear nothing. And when I go to your word, I hear nothing. And when I go to worship, I feel nothing. So he's going to all these places that used to be life-giving for him. And he has shown up, but he can't find God. And I think that's just really precious of him to have named that for us. Because when that happens to us, we need to know that is part of the cycle of life that we're going through. And we're going to talk about that more in depth in our third session. What do we do when we get to those places? But the psalmist is normalizing that for us. Sometimes you will read your Bible and you will have your quiet time and you will pray and you'll close it and you'll go about your day and you'll think, where is the living God in my life? I need him to show up for me. Where is he? And the psalmist is saying, this is how I'm ex experiencing this. I'm like a deer who has gone to all the right places but I can't find the living God. So the first image he give us, gives us is that of a deer. The second image is even more terrifying. It's that of a person who's drowning. So he says, deep after deep, let me actually read it so I get it correct. Uh, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gotten over me. He's saying, I feel like a person who wave after wave after wave keeps hitting me and I can't get my head above water. The sorrows of my life just keep coming and coming and coming. And I'm wondering, when will I get a break? When will I ever have a moment to breathe? And I want us to actually listen to what John Calvin says about this. <laughs> I always feel really smart when I quote John Calvin. <laughs> So let's listen to what John Calvin says about Psalm 42. He says, by this he, the psalmist means that he has been overwhelmed and as it were swallowed up by the accumulation of his afflictions. It ought, however, to be observed that he designated the cruelty of his enemies as the waves of God, that in all our adversities, we may always remember to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, which afflicts us. That's a hard word, John Calvin. <laughs> wave after wave comes over us. And some, this is where, for me, I grew up Presbyterian. This is where being Presbyterian is the hardest. Because other denominations can look at the waves and say, well, bad things just happen to good people. <laughs> but as Presbyterians, we know that God is sovereign. 
and we know that he has a plan and we can't say that. We can't divorce the hand of God from the sorrow in our life. And that leaves us in a really hard place. And so that's also why I really love this psalm because the psalmist recognizes you could have stopped these waves, but you didn't. All your waves, all your breakers have gone over me. And one after another, they're pushing me down into the deep and I don't know what to do. And so he gives us these two images, this dying thirst and this drowning man. And he says, this is what it feels like to be where I am. The accumulation of my sorrows have overtaken me. And this is the spot in the human heart where we want to escape. We don't like this tension. We don't want to believe that the beautiful saving hand of God that reaches out to us to rescue us sometimes also brings in his hand affliction. We don't like that. And so we want to explain away the tension because we don't want to be here. And yet what we'll see in this psalm is that the tension is actually the place where the living God shows up where we find the living God, when we try to escape the tension and we say things like, well, maybe he's not as powerful as I thought he was because he allowed these things into my life. Or maybe he's not as good as I thought he was because he allowed these things in our life. We're escaping the tension. Instead of saying, no, I know you're powerful and I know you're good. And yet you've allowed this sorrow into my life. But if I choose to stay there with him and I don't leave him, that's where the living God shows up. And that's where we're going to see the psalmist take us. I love Psalm 119. This verse has really been precious to my heart. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I know that you are good and that what you do is good. It was the affliction that taught the psalmist the goodness of God. Now I know that you're good and what you do is good. So how do we stay in this tension when every fiber of our being wants to escape? How do we stay? Well, I actually want us to look at a parallel prayer um, from one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Jonah prays almost the exact same words in Jonah chapter 2. You don't have to turn there just because we're going to hit this and move on. Um, But I want us to just remember the story of Jonah before we look at the prayer. I know we're all familiar with it because it is one of those terrifying stories that we teach our children in Sunday school. (laughs) When you're an adult and you read it, you're like, this is just horrible. Um, But so Jonah is running from God. He's rebelling. Um, He runs from God. And it's actually interesting. If you read Jonah chapter one, God is very active in this story. It says that God sees Jonah board this ship and he hurls a great wind on the water. So God sends a storm. And we know the story. The storm is so bad that the ship begins to break apart and they're starting to throw off all the cargo. Um, And Jonah finally says, hey, the storm's here for me. You should throw me in. And the sailors are reluctant to do it. But when they throw him in, the sea stops and, or the storm stops and a whale comes up and swallows Jonah. And so I want us to listen to the prayer that Jonah prays um, while he's inside the belly of the whale. So this is what Jonah prays. I want you to listen for the similarities to Psalm 42 and 43. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. So even though it was the sailors who threw him in the sea, Jonah recognizes that it was God who sent the storm. God's waves that had tossed the boat, 
God who had hurled him into the sea, God who had swallowed him up in the belly of a whale. God had done these things. And yet in the same prayer, remember, this is the prayer prayed from inside the belly of the whale. This is what Jonah says. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Jonah thanks God for his salvation where? When he's inside the belly of the whale. Now that's not where most of us would thank God for his salvation, right? We'd thank him after we got vomited up on dry land. Then we'd be like, thanks for the salvation. (laughs) But Jonah is actually showing us something really beautiful here. Jonah is saying, there are worse fates than being swallowed up by a whale. Even though I can't imagine anything worse than being swallowed by a whale. (laughs) Jonah is saying, no, no, there's something worse. In fact, before I was swallowed by the whale, I was in a worse place because I had suffered the fate of forgetting who my God is. And when he swallowed me up in the belly of this whale, he reminded me of who he is. I remembered my God. Listen how he said that. I remembered you. And that's what saved him. Jonah, I don't think Jonah had any idea that God was going to spit him up on dry land. And I would be very curious to know what day he prayed this prayer. I don't think it was day one. (laughs) I think it was probably on day three. (laughs) So he's been sitting here. He's been given time to think. And this is the prayer that pours out from his heart. Jonah realizes that his wayward, sinful heart was actually worse when he was on the boat. And it was better for him to be inside the belly of a whale. Because inside the belly of a whale, he had remembered who his God is. And so I think that that's really important for us to see. Because you and I can experience things in life like a whale swallowing us. And we can think, this is the judgment of God on me. And in some ways, God does send whales as discipline. But the whale was not a judgment on Jonah. The whale was his salvation. It was the saving of him. He had no way to know that at the moment. But God both afflicted Jonah and saved him in one act. There was one act that God put into the life of Jonah that both afflicted him and saved him. And in Jonah's prayer, we see that these two tensions work together. Even as God sends affliction into our life, he is also saving us through that affliction. It's the affliction of God that often saves us. And the affliction of God is often his salvation. And so that's a hard thing for us to think through. And honestly, I really don't know. I don't know that there's any scripture. Y'all can correct me. I have never found a scripture that says we have, we is commanded by God that we understand what he does. (laughs) A lot of what God does is a mystery. We're called to trust him, but we don't understand his ways a lot of the time. And I'm sure that Jonah didn't understand what was happening to him when he was swallowed up by the belly of the, in the belly of the whale. But he trusted God there. He believed that if God sent affliction into his life, it was for his salvation. And he praised God for the ways that he saved him. And we see that in this Psalm 2. So let's move on to finding God in the desert, in the deep. How did Jonah find God in the belly of the whale? The same way the psalmist found God in Psalm 42 and 43. So we have to ask ourselves the question, where are we? Before we can find God, we have to know where we are. Are you in a place that feels dry? Do you feel like you've been doing all the right things, but the joy of your salvation is no longer there? That the sense of God being active, working for you in your life has gone. 
and you feel cast off and forgotten? Or are you like precious little Jonah and wave after wave after wave is hitting you and you're just going deeper and deeper and deeper and you think, I don't know when I'm going to come up for air. All of his billows and his waves are passing over me. And so whether you feel dry and weary or you feel like you are drowning, the way back to God is the same, which I really appreciate. (laughs) No matter where you are, there's only one way back, and it's the way of remembering. In our psalm and in Jonah's prayer, both of them say, I remember you, God. I remember you. So the psalmist begins to speak to his own heart. And I want us to listen to the way the psalmist talks to his heart because it's a pattern for us to talk to our own hearts when we find ourselves in the desert and in the deep. The way back to the living God is the way of remembering. So how does the psalmist interact with God? Well, the first thing I I think it's easy to miss. The psalmist is talking about how God has forsaken him and forgotten him, but he's praying. He's not going to his friends and saying, God has forsaken me and forgotten me. He's going straight to the presence of God and saying, I feel like you've forgotten me. I feel like you've forsaken me. The psalmist is bringing his real self to a God that he knows is listening, even when he feels forsaken and forgotten. So the psalmist, even this prayer is an act of faith and a defiance against his own soul. He's talking to God about where he is. He goes directly to God to sorrow before him. And the psalmist understands that his feelings and his experience do not define his reality. He feels forsaken and forgotten, but he's going to say, but that I know that that's not true. So I'm going to go to the God who I feel like has forsaken and forgotten me. And I'm going to assume that he hasn't. I'm going to behave as if that's not true. And I love feelings. Our feelings are real. I have a pastor friend who says often to me, your feelings are real, but they don't always tell you the truth. And I think that's really helpful because as a very dramatic child growing up, I was told a lot that my feelings weren't real. And so it's good to understand your feelings are real, but they're not always telling you the truth. And so to understand the difference between our feelings being a gauge and a guide, those are two different things. Your feelings are there to tell you something's not quite right in you. And when you blow up in anger or you are crying a lot or you feel irritated, those things are a gauge. It's for you to stop and say, my soul is disquieted within me. <laughs> Let's look at why that is. Your feelings are a gauge and we can't ignore them in the same way that if you ignore that little red light that comes on that says that your car is overheating, you're going to be in trouble on down the highway, way on down the highway. So you have to pay attention to your feelings, but know that they are only a gauge. They don't tell you what's actually true in life a lot of the time. So we see that the psalmist brings his real feelings to God, but then he begins to speak truth to his own soul. And so three times we have this refrain in both of these psalms. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And I want to read just, this is a little bit of a longer quote. It comes from this book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. And it's really, really helpful. Um, So I'm going to read this to us. Um, This is what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about this passage. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, the psalmist's treatment was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down O my soul? He says his soul has been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, 
Listen for a moment and I will speak to you. This is my favorite part. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. (laughs) I love that. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know what to do with yourself. (laughs) Know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And then, here's the key. Then you must go on to remind yourself of God. Who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. And having done that, end on this great note, defy yourself. Defy other people, defy the devil, and defy the whole world. And say along with this man, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I think this past, this one little quote from this book has been more helpful to my heart in the last 10 years than most other quotes that I have ever read. Because I love that he's saying, stop listening to yourself all the time. You listen to yourself more than you listen to anybody else. And yourself does not always tell yourself the truth. And so sometimes you have to take yourself and you have to say, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. Now listen to me. And you have to take yourself in hand. You have to give yourself a good little shake. And then you begin to preach to your soul. You are called to be a preacher, every single one of you. You are called to preach to your own heart the truth of who God is. Because the enemy loves to throw daggers at you and to tell you lies about your God and lies about you. And you have to come up with a whole book of frightening phrases from scripture and say, that's not true. This is who my God is. And you have to fight for yourself. And you have to learn to preach not of your own work, not of the great things you've done, because that's like a fig leaf covering one strong wind and that's going to blow away (laughs) but you preach to yourself of what your God has done you have a history throughout the old testament of your God's faithfulness he has proven himself to you again and again and again that he will be faithful to you that he will not leave you or forsake you that he has not forgotten you that he has paid for your life with his own blood because you are precious to him and you come up with a sermon for your heart and you preach it again and again and again until you remember his covenantal love. And that's what we see the psalmist do. I encourage you to go back and read Psalm 42 and 43 again and look at the ways the psalmist preaches to his own soul. He says, I remember your hesed, your covenantal love towards me. I remember the ways that you have promised your heart to me and that you will not take that promise away. I remember that you have bound yourself to me. And I love that in Psalm 43, he recognizes his feelings can't guide him home. He says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. My feelings are not going to lead me home. But the light of your face, your countenance, your smile turned towards me. And the truth of your word, that will lead me home. And I need to focus on the light of your face. That because of the work of Jesus, the Father's face smiles at you all the time. You are his beloved child because of Jesus. And the Father delights for you to come into his presence. And we let that face bring us home. If you think the father's frowning at you, you're never going to come home. But this psalm shows us his face is turned towards us. The life of Jesus shows us the face of God is turned towards you. He delights and sings over you because of the work of Jesus. Come home, little child, is what he's saying to you. Let your light and your truth lead me. And I love that the psalmist stops praying that God would change his situation And he begins to pray, let me see your face. Let the light of your face shine on me. And 
It's okay to pray that God would change your situation if you're in a hard place. It's okay. But my heart wants to pray for more than just that. I want God's face here. Because if I'm going to be in a hard situation, I want to come out of that hard situation clinging to his face. And that's what the psalmist is modeling for us. He's saying, look for the face of God in your life. Look for the places that are where God's smile is shining on you, even in the hard spaces. And I love that he ends on this joyful, defiant note. I will again praise him. He's telling his own heart, you're not going to stay in this place. I will again praise God. And so as we close, I just want to remind us that we have an even greater resource than the psalmist had to speak truth to our own hearts. We have what Jesus called the sign of Jonah. So we're going to talk about Jonah just for a moment here at the end. Jonah shows back up in Matthew chapter 12 because the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, give us a sign. Show us that you are who you say that you are. And Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. I'll give you the sign of Jonah because something greater than Jonah is here. And the sign of Jonah is interesting. I think there's a lot of debate over what it is. It could be lots of things, but I think it's at least two things. (laughs) So we have the sign of Jonah, two things that we can learn from the sign of Jonah. It's interesting. Again, I don't read Hebrew, so I have to rely on men and women who do and write commentaries. Uh, But it's interesting in the story of Jonah, there's a parallel story in the New Testament when the disciples are on the ship and there's a storm and they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care that we're perishing? So in both of those stories, the same thing is happening. A sea is raging. A boat is beginning to tear apart and seasoned sailors and fishermen are on both ships and they're both very afraid, which means the storms are pretty bad. But when Jonah's body goes into the water, it says that the sea Ahmad, A-M-A-D, it Ahmad, it stood still. Jonah's body goes under the waves and the sea goes like glass. The same thing happens when Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the wind and says, hush, be still. The sea goes silent, which is why the same reaction happens on both boats. The sailors who threw Jonah in all of a sudden start offering sacrifices to Jonah's God and making vows and promises to him because they recognize something amazing just happened. The sea was raging, but the sacrifice of one man made the sea calm. And the same thing happened to the disciples. The sea was raging, but the voice of one man made the sea go silent. And they look at one another and they're afraid. And they say, who is this? That even the sea and the winds obey him. The sign of Jonah is this. There is a sea raging against you, full of all of the punishment that your sins deserve. It's a sea of wrath and it's coming for every single human being. But on one day, the son of God flung himself into that sea. And as his body went under the waves, the sea became like glass. It stood still. One of the signs of Jonah is this. There is no longer a sea raging against you. If you are in Christ, there is no wrath left for you, child of God. Yes, sometimes your father disciplines you. Hebrews tells us that if he didn't discipline you, it would mean that he didn't love you. He sees hurtful ways in you. So sometimes he brings his discipline to you to help you amend those ways and get back on the path of everlasting life. But when those things come to you, you have to know this. It doesn't come from an angry father because his anger is done. He spent it already on his son. When discipline comes into your life, the question of your heart should never be, do you hate me? 
Have I gone too far this time that you've finally given up on me? The question of your heart should be, Father, let me see your face in this, because I want to come home. Your Father loves you. That's the first sign of Jonah. And the second sign of Jonah is this, that in the same way that Jesus Christ, the same way that Jonah went into the belly of the whale for three days, and that was his salvation, in the same way Jesus Christ went into the belly of the tomb, and for three days everyone grieved and gave up hope. But on the third day, he rose again. And when he came out of that tomb, he crushed death and sin, and it no longer has a hold over you. Because of one man's affliction, you and I can rejoice and have hope in this world. The battle has been won. What we now deal with are those pains of labor as the new kingdom is being birthed. And labor pains are different than the pains that Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered the pain of punishment Labor pains are ones that know something good is coming. And if I can stay, and if I can fix my eyes on him, and I can endure, I will see the beauty of new life come here. So the sign of Jonah shows us that God is no longer angry at us and no longer exacting payment from us. But he has defeated sin and death, and he has set us free, and we have great reason to hope. And so that's what we'll spend the rest of our time talking about who is this God that would love us like this. It's a God who longs to usher you into his protection and care and who wants you to come and bring your heart before him and sorrow before him so that he can comfort you in a way nobody else can because that's the God that we serve. So sorry for the downer first session, but I hope you come back because it's going to be happier in the next two. (laughs) Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that... We thank you that even though we will suffer in this life, we will suffer under your benevolent care. Lord, I know, I know that suffering is inevitable. I know that because on the night that you were betrayed, you promised that to your disciples. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so, God, I pray that you would give us new eyes to see our suffering, that we would see that even if it's your hand that brings it, God, that those hands bear the marks of love for us that your hands have scars on them. Your body is scarred for all of eternity so that we would remember that you bore the marks of affliction for us, that you bore the wrath that we deserved so that our Father could accept us and love us and bring us into his home. And so, Jesus, I pray for us. It's hard. You know our weakness and our frailty. You know our frames, that we have come from dust, And so I pray that you would help us. Would you strengthen us as we go through the sufferings in life? Would you help us endure? And would you help us see your face? Because if we can't see your face, we're going to give up because we're weak. So I pray that you would help us see your face here and that you would give us the strength to move forward because we know your heart, because it's been on full display in the life of Jesus Christ. So help us to trust you wherever we are. Help us to hope. Help us to wait patiently and watch expectantly knowing that you will bring all of your promises true, that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus, and we can trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, good. Okay, you will open your little uh, booklet at your place, and you'll see the schedule, but then you'll turn to page two. We're just going to have like 15 minutes. Table just to discuss some of these questions.
probably not going to get through all of them, but if one of you will just have a guide conversation, um, we'll do that, and then I will close that time.